I'm Mark Lynch, director of the project on Middle East political science. Welcome back to the POMAP's Middle East Books podcast, our series of conversations with scholars with new books out in the field. Joining us today is Joas Vagamakers. He's a professor of Islamic and Arabic studies at Utrecht University and the author of the brand new book, The Muslim Brotherhood in Jordan, just published by Cambridge University Press. Uh, Joas, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. So tell us, uh, tell us about this book. Uh, what inspired you to write this and what do you think the major contribution of the book is? Well, what inspired me to write this was really that um, I saw that the Jordanian Muslim Brotherhood, unlike the, Jordan, the Muslim Brotherhood in other countries in the Arab world, had always had quite a bit of space to develop itself and to uh, participate in parliamentary elections. And I thought that that was rather uh, interesting because you could actually see prior to the Arab Spring how the Muslim Brotherhood had evolved and developed in a context where it was allowed to develop rather than crack down upon. So that was really what inspired me to do it. And as for the major contributions, I think that uh, they're basically three. The first is that it's first and foremost a very detailed study of Islamist ideology, and particularly the concepts of Islamist ideology, going back all the way to the Prophet Muhammad, studying them from, from a sort of a political point of view, how they developed in the, the history of Islamic political thought, all the way to uh, current day Jordan. Uh, the second major contribution is that it, it really is the, the most detailed study of the Muslim Brotherhood in Jordan, uh, at least in English so far. And the third contribution that I can think of is that it contributes in its own very modest way. I have to say that because I'm not a political scientist, but it contributes to the, to the debate within political science of whether moderation leads to uh, inclusion, sorry, leads to moderation and whether ideological moderation um, is actually something that happens once highly ideological movements such as the Muslim Brotherhood or other groups in, in, in Europe or in the United States are included in the political system. And up till now, that debate was really dominated by people who either said yes or no to that particular question with regard to the Muslim Brotherhood in Jordan. And I say that both answers are actually possible um, in the particular context of the history of the Muslim Brotherhood and the Islamic Action Front in Jordan. So. I basically say that both answers are correct if you just look at it more closely. Great. Well, let's let's like kind of dive into this a little bit. Uh, the book is a, it's it's a terrific book, and I if the contribution of it being the most detailed book about the Jordanian Muslim Brotherhood, um, it, it absolutely is. Uh, the amount of research that went into this is really quite uh, really quite remarkable, and it, I think it does help you get into a lot of the nuance um, and divisions within the organization. Um, let me start by just maybe for the benefit of people who um, aren't as familiar with Jordan's Muslim Brotherhood, just walk us through a little bit kind of the evolution of the Brotherhood and, it, and, its, and its relationship to the Jordanian monarchy and regime. And kind of that'll help the, to ground some of the discussion we're going to have about its ideas. Sure. Well, the Muslim Brotherhood in Jordan was founded in 1945 and given a license in 1946. And that in itself was rather special because whereas in Egypt and in Syria and in other countries, the Muslim Brotherhood has always been more of more or less clandestine organization, not entirely legal, not entirely illegal. But in Jordan, it basically had royal support from the very start. And the reason for that was that the king did not really have a lot of authority within the country of Transjordan, as it was still called in the 1920s and 30s and 40s, and sought sources of authority that would help him uh, gained the status of, of king or ruler of, of this new nation. 
And um, by using Islam, not just his own descent of the Prophet Muhammad, but also support for Islamic organizations, he sought to um, uh, support his own position. And that's uh, the reason why he supported the Muslim Brotherhood from 1946 onward. And you can basically see that from the 1940s to at least the 1980s, there was, a, generally speaking, a good relationship between the regime on the one hand and the Muslim Brotherhood on the other. Um, the regime supported the Muslim Brotherhood when it needed it. It allowed it to remain um, in existence when political parties uh, were not allowed to uh, participate in elections, for example. It allowed it to uh, express itself with regard to charitable activities, social activities, all those kinds of things. And the Muslim Brotherhood, in return, supported the regime when it needed it most. And one of, the things, one of the things you point out there is that it wasn't only a marriage of convenience that uh, Jordanian Muslim Brotherhood, many of the thinkers actually agreed with the monarchy and some of the big issues of the day, especially how much they hated Nasser. Sure, that's absolutely true. It was not just a marriage of convenience. Um, the Muslim Brothers in Jordan, of course, saw how the, their Muslim brethren in Egypt were being treated by uh, Gemal Abdel Nasser in, uh, in Egypt. And they saw this is not what we want. So when there was an, an alleged coup in 1957 against the Jordanian regime, they really supported the regime because they said, you know, uh, obviously this is a better option than, than the one in, uh, in, uh, in Egypt. So it was not just a marriage of convenience, you're quite right, but there was also um, quite a bit of uh, self-preservation involved. Uh, there were also people uh, to this very day, in fact, in the Muslim Brotherhood who really believe in the Jordanian uh, kingdom, uh, particularly those of East Jordanian origin mm -hmm. who see the, the Jordanian regime as a sort of bulwark against uh, creeping Palestinianization. And um, so, th so there is more than just a marriage of, uh, of convenience. Nevertheless, that relationship between the Brotherhood and the regime sort of evolved in the, in the late 1980s, early 1990s into one that was not so much one of cooperation, but more of contestation. And the reason for that is that the Muslim Brotherhood became increasingly politicized. They started focusing more and more on the Palestinian question. They started seeing themselves as a political opposition rather than just a group that supported the regime. Um, the shared enemies that both the regime and the Muslim Brotherhood had uh, had basically left the scene. Nasserism was was dead and gone, really. Uh, the, Muslim, the, the Palestinian militants had been uh, thrown out in the 1970s, so there were no common enemies anymore. Obviously, the, the British uh, colonialists uh, were not there anymore. So the Muslim Brotherhood developed into an oppositional force, and that tainted the regime, uh, sorry, the relationship between the regime and the Brotherhood. Uh, it, it became more of a contested relationship. Uh, the Brotherhood participated in elections, did quite well. Uh, the regime didn't like that, so tried to gerrymander districts in such a way that the Muslim Brotherhood did not win as many seats anymore, and did so quite successfully, I have to add. And uh, particularly with the current king, King Abdullah II, from 1999 onward, the relationship has been one of confrontation. And I hesitated slightly in saying that. I, I use the word confrontation in the book. It's not just been one of, of, of crackdown and of military repression like we saw in Egypt and in Syria and other countries, but really one of legally, sometimes militarily, uh, sometimes judiciously, but in, in, in many ways, uh, trying to limit the activities and trying to limit the options of the Muslim Brotherhood uh, 
eventually culminating in the decision to outlaw the original Muslim Brotherhood, which is the current situation there today. The, dis the dismantling of the Muslim Brotherhood, you trace it in, in some detail. Why don't we talk through that just a little bit, the emergence of the Zamzam movement and then uh, the, the new Muslim Brotherhood. It's all, it's all fascinating. And I think something which flew under the radar of a lot of people, even people who do study Islamist movements. Yeah, sure. Um, well, the, the interesting thing is that the Muslim Brotherhood has always been very divided on several issues, ideological issues, practical issues, issues of participation, engagement with the regime, etc. But these divisions, precisely because the Brotherhood had a good relationship with the regime and because it was not very politically engaged uh, prior to 1989, they had not really become manifest. And as such, it was not very clear how the Muslim Brotherhood was divided. But after 1989, when decisions had to be made about, are we going to participate in elections? Are we going to participate in the government if, if the government asks us to? Are we going to be responsible for the decisions that we make? So that really had to make political decisions. Um, the, the, the existing divisions within the Muslim Brotherhood became clearer and clearer. And you saw that some people said, look, I mean, the regime is clearly not cooperating with us. It's, it's countering our efforts to strive for reform, um, whatever kind of reform that is. And as such, it is really no use for us to contest the elections as they did in 1997, um, mm -hmm. when they boycotted the elections. And there were some people who said, look, we need to keep up this good relationship with the regime. We do want to cooperate. So slowly but surely, small groups of people started leaving the Muslim Brotherhood, particularly over their relationship with the regime. And there were other debates going on as well, for example, of whether it was allowed to cooperate with a regime that was perceived, at least by some, as, as un-Islamic, whether that was allowed or not, whether you could um, be a member of parliament, that was perhaps okay, but not a member of government, because in that case, you would really be responsible for policy decisions and you would have to apply laws that were not, strictly speaking, Islamic. So these were all, all debates. And because the Muslim Brotherhood became sort of narrower and narrower, some people started seeing the Muslim Brotherhood as too narrow, as too strictly uh, exclusive and Islamist rather than, than broadly reformist. And some people, including most prominently Ruhay al-Gharaiba, who uh, mm -hmm. is uh, a think, one of the most important thinkers in the Islamist movement in Jordan, he set up an initiative called the Zamzam Initiative, it's referred to as Zamzam because of the hotel Zamzam in, uh, in Amman, but it was, it's really called the, um, the National Reform Initiative or something like that. And they set up an initiative and said, look, we want to strive for reform in this country on as broad a basis as possible. So if nationalists and capitalists and socialists and whatever type of people are going to join us, that is all great because we need a broad coalition, one that is inclusive and not exclusively Islamist. And that was really viewed with quite a bit of skepticism from within the Muslim Brotherhood because they said, you know, what are you doing? Are you setting up a new political party or what is this? Why are you doing this? Because there was really a lot of cooperation between Islamists and non-Islamists. And people like Ruhay al-Gharaiba, but also Jamil Duhayset and uh, Nabil al-Kufahi, these were the most prominent Muslim brothers involved in this initiative, said, no, this is not a new political party. It's just an initiative. And our goals are basically more or less the same as those of the Muslim Brotherhood, but they're just framed in a more uh, broad language, as it were. And they did so, but eventually there was quite a lot of tension, quite a lot of friction. They said, no, really, you have to make sure that this is not a new initiative, that um, 
steals away the attention from the Muslim Brotherhood. You can't do this. Uh, you have to make sure that you are still loyal to the Muslim Brotherhood. And this, this friction and this tension eventually got out of control and they were fired from the Muslim Brotherhood. And this in itself, the, the tensions that were created over this conflict about Zemzam created so much more tension that in uh, late 2015, really at the very end of 2015, late December, uh, several hundred uh, members of the Muslim Brotherhood, including very prominent ones, such as Hamza Mansour, who was the previous Secretary General of the Islamic Action Front, Jamil Abu Bakr, who was also a very prominent member, and, and others, left the Muslim Brotherhood out of frustration over this attitude. So the Muslim Brotherhood really became a, a smaller and smaller group. At the same time, there were also people who were unsatisfied with uh, the situation as it was within the Brotherhood, who set up an alternative Muslim Brotherhood. And because of a sort of legal quirk that, that the, the regime insists upon, that the, the original Muslim Brotherhood had not renewed its license, but the new Brotherhood had requested a new license, they said, okay, we have two organizations now in the country, both claiming the name Muslim Brotherhood. We can only acknowledge one, we can only recognize one, and we're going to go with the new one. So the old one is no longer legal, and the assets of the old one can all be claimed by the new one, which was a rather strange situation because you had an organization that is 70 years old, yeah. participated in elections, has set up an, uh, an Islamic hospital, has done all kinds of things, and suddenly it hears you don't really exist anymore because you didn't renew your license since the 1950s. So that's the situation as it is right now in Jordan. And so basically, by, by that a rationale, the, the Muslim Brotherhood in Jordan technically no longer exists. That's right. That's right. Yeah. So absolutely fascinating. Let's um, uh, maybe take a step back now. Um, one of the things which I think makes your book really stand out, what differentiates it from a lot of other things written about uh, Muslim Brotherhood uh, in any country, is that you take the ideas really seriously and you really dig deeply into uh, the political thought of these organizations um, and uh, on, a, on a whole range of issues. And um, maybe a way to start getting into this is maybe to talk about the relationship between Jordanian Muslim Brotherhood thinkers and kind of the big global Muslim Brotherhood thinkers, the ones who, you know, kind of set the intellectual agenda for the region. And how is that, you know, map out onto these internal debates inside the, inside the Jordanian Muslim Brotherhood? Right. Well, the Muslim brother, I just asked these people, I mean, who are your sources of influence? And mm -hmm. I got the same answers every time. Uh, first of all, the, the early Muslim brother thinkers, including Hassan al-Banna most pro prominently, but also people like Sayyid Qutb, uh, Abdul Qadir Awda, uh, Hassan al-Hudaybi was not mentioned very often, but he was also among those. So the early Muslim brotherhood leaders on the one hand, and uh, the global Islamist scholars that, that we all know, like Yusuf al-Qaradawi, Rashid al-Ghanoushi, Hassan al-Turabi, these people on the other hand. And I studied their thought and I saw a clear um, evolution in their thought where people like Yusuf al-Qaradawi, even though they claim to be heirs to Hassan, uh, sorry, uh, yeah, Hassan al-Banna, their thought is uh, in certain areas clearly different. I mean, they, they've clearly accepted uh, democracy, for example, to a greater extent than, than Hassan al-Banna did. And, and not even to not not to mention someone like Rashid Al Ghanoushi, who's who's gone a bit quite a bit further on in, on that front. Mm -hmm. So you could see that this evolution taking place, and precisely because the Jordanian Muslim Brotherhood does not really have any major thinkers. I mean, Hassan Al Turabi is a major international Islamist thinker who 
who was also the leader of, of uh, the uh, National Islamic Front in Sudan and Rashid al-Ghanoushi, of course, for al-Nahda in, in Tunisia. Jordan doesn't have these people. It has scholars and it has thinkers and, and intellectuals, but they really only have a sort of national profile. Very few people outside of Jordan know them. And as such, Jordan, more than other countries perhaps, relies rather heavily or relatively heavily on outside thinkers, people from, from other countries. And they derive their thought and their ideology uh, much more from foreigners than from their own scholars, which is one of the reasons why someone like um, Mohammed Abu Faris, who's one of the most prominent scholars, uh, who was one of the most prominent scholars because he died a few years ago in the Muslim Brotherhood in Jordan, um, saw his own influence wane um, as the years went by. And he's, he's, he was really uh, sort of a, a one-man group uh, in the end, really. So, so that was quite interesting. But you saw that these international ideas expressed by people like Al-Qaradawi and Al-Ghanoushi were very influential on the Muslim Brotherhood. And given the fact that the Muslim Brotherhood was given quite a lot of space or relatively uh, much space in Jordan to develop its ideas and develop its political activities on the one hand, and the fact that they were following um, scholars, international scholars, such as Al-Qaradawi, who were increasingly willing to embrace certain concepts that Hassan al-Banna and certainly Sayyid Qutb had not been willing to embrace, they provided the Jordanian Muslim Brotherhood with the, the ideological underpinnings of the reform that they sought. Mm -hmm. And uh, one example, for example, is, is that uh, the term shura, so consultation, was very often seen by the early Muslim Brotherhood as, as a sort of Islamic alternative or perhaps an Islamist alternative to democracy. Whereas in the Jordanian Muslim Brotherhood, it really became, uh, came to be seen as equal to democracy to the point that they really started avoiding the word shura altogether and just started talking about democracy. And this is a development you can also see in international circles. And that was heavily influential on uh, the Jordanian Muslim Brotherhood for, for the reason I just gave. It's really interesting. And so let, let's talk about some of these ideas then. Um, so for example, you, you just mentioned the shura and uh, democracy, um, but you, you have a whole range of things that you track quite in, in a lot of detail about the ideas about the caliphate, about sharia. Um, you know, choose whichever one you think is most interesting and kind of walk us through how the Iranian Muslim brothers engage with one of these key concepts. Right. Well, um, if you focus on um, on political participation, which is which is one area where you can see that the Muslim Brotherhood has, has made um, quite a lot of I, I, I was going to say progress, but, but perhaps I should say that where they've developed a lot uh, rather than uh, give my own opinion on this. Um, you can see that early Muslim Brotherhood thinkers were really even someone like Hassan al-Hudaybi, who was generally portrayed as a moderate within the uh, Egyptian Muslim Brotherhood, really thought in terms of the caliphate, even though he was writing about an Islamic state, he was writing about it really describing the trappings of the caliphate. So he was talking about the leader and, and, and he was talking about that the, the leader needs to be pious and all power flows forth from the leader. So while he was talking about an Islamic state, he, was, he really had the caliphate in mind. That is an idea that um, you can also see within some uh, writings of, of the Jordanian Muslim Brotherhood, particularly Muhammad Abu Faris, who really writes about that as well. But the Jordanian Muslim Brotherhood rather quickly gives up the idea that it has to strive for a caliphate. So it develops into an Islamic state. So it's, it's not really uh, transnational anymore, but it really becomes something that, that mm -hmm. should be achieved within the borders and within the, uh, the, the, the 
the context of Jordan. Now, once they decided that, it's, it's really only a small step to say, okay, what does that mean in Islamic State? An Islamic State is a state in which the Sharia is applied. But then what is the Sharia, of course? And you can see that certain groups within the Muslim Brotherhood start seeing the Sharia not so much as a set of rules and regulations, but more and more as a set of, of guidelines, as uh, the process that I call the constitutionalization of, of, of the Sharia, where the Sharia is not so much a set of rules, but a set of guidelines that, that guide a, uh, a country towards a more Islamic society. And because they sort of constitutionalize the Sharia, and because they make it more vague and less specific, it is easier for them to justify um, running for elections, for example, participating in governments. It is easier for them to say, okay, uh, we are actually much further along the road that we want to travel than we initially thought, because we constantly saw the country as, as this um, un-Islamic country that needs to apply the Sharia. But if we look at it closely, there's actually quite a lot of stuff that is already being done. It's just that the regime is not acting upon it. And in practice, this translated in things like uh, the, or, there ought to be a separation of powers. Uh, the parliament should not be, uh, sorry, the government should not be appointed by the king, but should actually be a reflection of parliament. So they started using all these different concepts um, of constitutional monarchy, an Islamic state within, uh, sorry, uh, a civil state with an Islamic authority, and using them in a sense that they said, look, all of these aspects that we strive for are there in the Jordanian constitution is just that the government is not doing it. It's just that the regime is not doing it. The king is not giving up his power enough and he's, he's not allowing us to translate our parliamentary power into a new government. So they started reframing their Islamic ideas in such a way that they became attainable and achievable in a Jordanian context. And that's, is obviously a sort of Jordanianizing, if that's a word, um, mm -hmm. attempt uh, to, to, to pour Islamism into the Jordanian context. And that was inspired by the, the developments that started with people like Yusuf al-Qaradawi and others. So that's actually a good then, uh, maybe a way to get into kind of the last big thing that, uh, that we want to talk about and that you mentioned is one of the contributions of the book, which is this uh, political science debate about uh, inclusion and repression and moderation and, um, and you know, what this actually means in terms of the Jordanian context to talk about moderation at all. Um, and so, and, and actually I actually think that this, this idea about looking at the divisions within the organization is actually very, very helpful in terms of seeing where and how this ideational change takes place. But walk us through then, like where, how you see this uh, operating then. If, if it's not inclusion to moderation, if it's not repression to moderation, what exactly do you see happening in political context leading to the change of ideas? Right. Well, I do see that there is inclusion and moderation within the Muslim Brotherhood in Jordan. Uh, the, the Brotherhood has been included for many years, uh, for many decades, in fact, and it has moderated its ideology. So generally speaking, that is the trend. But at the same time, we have seen repression over the last few years. And the reason I believe that that repression has also led to moderation is because the Jordanian Muslim Brotherhood has been in a situation of ideological moderation for such a long time, both because of the context in which they operated, the international ideology that they adopted, and the divisions that they had, because those divisions allowed people to shift from one position to another uh, fairly easily without having to leave the Brotherhood altogether, that 
for say 50, 60 years, perhaps even longer than that, a certain moderation, ideological moderation was facilitated. That left the Muslim Brotherhood, as well as its political affiliate, the Islamic Action Front, with a, a range of options that were all legal, non-violent, non-revolutionary. So the most radical position that you could take within the Muslim Brotherhood for some time was to say, okay, we're going to boycott the elections. Mm -hmm. But the, the language and the discourse of the Muslim Brotherhood had moderated to such an extent that, that saying something like, okay, we're going to overthrow the government or we're going to stage a coup or something like that, that was really out of the question. That was not part of the Brotherhood's discourse anymore. So the Brotherhood did radicalize under pressure for, um, let's say in the 1990s, but only by resorting to the means of boycotting the election. It was in the 2010s, so that the past few years, when there was quite a bit of repression that the Brotherhood moderated further, simply because they saw in Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates, in Egypt and in other countries as well, that the Brotherhood was increasingly coming under fire, was being labeled a terrorist organization, that the Muslim Brotherhood itself was being dismantled by the regime, and that the Islamic Action Front really had only way, only one way left to remain relevant and to remain legal, which was to engage in parliamentary elections, to uh, be a, a parliamentary presence, and to engage in the only type of opposition that the regime really allows, which is being in parliament. Because that is a type of opposition that the re regime can control rather than people going out into the streets and protest uh, and, and what have you. So the Muslim Brotherhood really weighed its, its different options and moderated even further under pressure. So within a general context of inclusion leads to moderation, the Brotherhood moderated even further under repression for those specific reasons. And the reason that these divisions are so important is because the, the divisions within the Muslim Brotherhood allowed it to shift its positions relatively easily with regard to the state and with regard to political participation. So their views on democracy, for example, have really become uh, far more in line with, with uh, I, I wouldn't say completely in line, but far more in line with, with other Democrats but with regard to social issues such as women's rights and the rights of religious minorities, particularly Christians, of course, and also civil liberties such as freedom of speech, the Muslim Brotherhood has not moderated as much. And I argue that one of the reasons they didn't do that is because they were quite united in those issues. I mean, someone like Mohammed Abu Faris is really diametrically opposed to someone like Ruhayil Gharaiba on a host of issues. But with regard to religious minorities or women's rights or freedom of speech, they're still quite different, somewhat different, but not very much. So you could see that in order for a member of the Muslim Brotherhood to really deviate from the Muslim Brotherhood line, he or she would have to leave the Muslim Brotherhood altogether. So because that division within the organization itself does not really exist with regard to social or societal issues, um, the, the movement was rather united and did not moderate as much. There were other reasons as well, such as that Jordanian society is rather conservative and that uh, it would not be acceptable for the Muslim Brotherhood to come up with a very liberal point of view with regard to uh, religious minorities or women's rights or, or civil liberties. Um, it has to reflect those values, of course, and it also uh, has to um, be responsible towards its constituents. So. It can't just run ahead of the pack, as it were. It really has to reflect the democratic values of, of Jordanian society. So if it claims to be a democracy, it also has to uh, reflect those values. So there are more reasons than just the divisions in the organization. But I argue that 
the, the, the ideological unity with regard to societal issues is one of the reasons why they did moderate with regard to the state and political participation and did not with regard to societal issues. But since thinkers like uh, Rogel Graeba uh, left the Brotherhood and formed its own new organization, um, to, is, does it still make sense to talk about them as, as, a, single, um, as a single entity? Um, yeah, I, I see a point. Um, in a sense, no, because they're part of different organizations. But at the same time, they still share the same Islamist, um, very broad Islamist ideology. I mean, uh, Ruhayl Gharayba really left the organization not so much because he disagreed with them ideologically. I mean, he, I remember interviewing him and he, and he said, you know, I, I asked him, do, do people like uh, Zaki Beni Yashid, who was one of the most prominent members of the Muslim Brotherhood at the time, do they disagree with what the Zamzam Initiative says. And he says, no, I don't think they disagree with any of it. And I interviewed Zaki Ben Yashid as well, and he said the same thing. I don't think that there was a strong ideological difference between them with regard to the demands of the Zamzam Initiative. It was just that some people like Ruhayl Gharaiba really wanted to break out of this uh, exclusivist um, Islamist mold, whereas Zaki Ben Yashid was quite happy with that. So I think that the, the question was more of a... a, of a uh, sort of a, an, an iron framework of, of Islamist of the Islamist organization uh, that was to the satisfaction of, of Zaki Ben Yashid and not Ruhayl Gharaiba, not so much an ideological thing. And besides that, they also very often speak of, of themselves as the Islamic movement rather than just the Muslim Brotherhood, just the Islamic Action Front. So I think that yeah. organizationally, yes, you're right, they are not the same anymore, but they are still part of the Islamic movement. Well, maybe the second edition of the book uh, that you should change the title to the Muslim Brotherhoods in Jordan. <laughs> Perhaps I should. Yeah, that's a good point. So we've, we've been speaking with uh, Yoaz Wagemakers about his, uh, his book, The Muslim Brotherhood in Jordan, just published by Cambridge University, by Cambridge University Press. Uh, thank you, Yoaz, for joining us and uh, for sharing these thoughts about your book. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me.